0: Leadership Confessions with Phil Rose from Clarity Leadership.
1: Hi, and welcome to our third episode of Leadership Confessions with me, Phil Rose. I'm delighted to say my guest today is Lee Newman. Lee's Group CEO of VPS, and I've worked with Lee for approximately 10 years across four different businesses. I've seen many people follow Lee from business to business which is evident of the fact that people will follow leaders, not missions and visions. I think Lee's a model of rigour, discipline and hard work. Yet amongst all of that, he engenders a sense of fun and camaraderie. Lee, a very warm welcome. Thank you. Do you want to give us a quick overview of your role at the VPS Group, please?
0: Sure, so VPS are a private equity-backed pan-European business. We operate in 12 countries. Uh, We're in property and asset security services, so at any one time we would look after around 35,000 properties across Europe, and really we see ourselves as a disruptor of man guarding. So manned guarding being the traditional route for protection, we would argue is ineffective, or at least is ineffective in certain circumstances. And what we bring to market is a portfolio proposition where we offer a mix of physical barriers, technology barriers, and human intervention, which taken in total uh, is an alternative and more effective competitor to manned guarding.
1: Thank you. Now, before we get into your role as Group CEO, I want to rewind the clock 20 plus years because before all of this, you were a full-time athlete.
0: I was, that seems like a very long time ago now, Phil. So um, <laughs> I was I was a track and field athlete. So my events were shot put and discus throw. Uh, I competed for England, Wales, Great Britain, uh, won national championships in England and Wales, also GB, Scotland, uh, and picked up a few in the Eurozone as well. Got to compete all over the world, um, and it was a fantastic way to grow up. Fantastic experience. Seemed very normal at the time because all of my friends were doing it. You know, everyone was doing the same kind of thing. Um, But now, in hindsight, I realize that perhaps it was something a little bit unusual. Uh, But I have to say, I've enjoyed the 18 years since retirement, getting into business. I've enjoyed more than uh, I did as an athlete, and that's not something I ever would have said. Um, leading up to retiring back in 2002
1: so you've you've retired once you've started a second career um what what's what have you taken from your career as an athlete into business
0: I think there's a few things. I mean, track and field is where my character was formed. And something that I do think has served me in good stead is having attention to the scoreboard, keeping your eyes on the results. Uh, Something that really surprised me when I moved into uh, a business life was the mental gymnastics people would go through to rewrite their intentions in a particular project or business plan, you know, that set out their ambitions to achieve 10 million of something achieve 8 million of something and then spend a lot of effort and energy explaining why 8 really wasn't so bad 10 was probably never achievable whereas what sport teaches you is okay if you set out to do 10 and you did 8 put your energy and effort in understanding how you bridge the two what could you have done differently to move it forward but that all comes back to having a focus on the school board and being really clear about what your intended results are I think that was something that, that was natural to me in sport. Um, and it was something that served me well in business. The probably hand in hand with that is coaching, you know, a name that is, uh, a word that is synonymous with sport. I was surprised, uh, in business, particularly in senior leaders, um, how little coaching featured in people's plans. You know, no matter how great you are in sport, you always need a coach. Um, doesn't mean that that coach needs to be better than you at the sport that you do, but it does give you a source for guidance and advice about how you improve. So I've brought coaching into the workplace, coaching for performance, um, and I like to think now, uh, nearly 20 years into my journey, I remain highly coachable. So I'm always seeking opportunities to refine the way I do things and move forward. I think both that results focus and the need for coaching to achieve performance uh, are two things I've taken out of track and field into business life.
1: When you started in business life, which is only 18 years ago, you you know, I would see you've had a, a, a meteoric rise to where you are today Where did you start off 18 years ago after retiring? Your last performance was the Commonwealth Games at Manchester, I believe.
0: It was. I was hanging by a thread by then, so I wasn't in great shape, but I was good enough to make the team and uh, made the final and what have you. So it was a nice way to sign out in front of a a home crowd. Um, My first job was working selling computers uh, for Dixon Stores Group um, in PC World, which does seem like a lifetime ago now. Um, and, and I didn't, I never had a plan, Phil. So there's never been a great career path that I thought I would be going on. All I've ever sought to do is do the best that I could at the role that I had. Um, I worked hard to try to perfect my performance, and opportunities came my way, whether that be promotions or uh, the opportunities to sort of compete for an incentive um, or people taking a chance on me and giving me opportunities to progress my career.
1: So when you think back to leaders that you admire, whether that be in a, a sports environment or a business environment or frankly, any environment, which, which leaders come to mind for you and, and more importantly, why? Uh,
0: there have been a few people that have been great for me inside business, which um, it's nice to have the chance to talk about that. But Justin Henshaw early on in my career, David Downey, who I still work with today, who's a non-exact director of VPS Group now. Uh, and also Steve Ashmore. But when I think about folks who the listeners may have heard of, I I probably come back to some of the traditional ones in terms of Winston Churchill, Margaret Thatcher, uh, Muhammad Ali. I'm kind of drawn to those people, uh, I think because they were clear about what they stood for um, and they weren't afraid to follow what they believed in, even if that wouldn't necessarily make them popular. And they're also the kind of people I think would be good in a crisis, which is uh, it's a kind of character trait that I admire. I think leadership really matters when there's a crisis situation.
1: Okay, that's, you know, that's interesting. How would you describe your leadership style then? You talked about, you know those three characters that we know, and, and certainly I know that those business ones too. But how would you describe your leadership style?
0: I' the risk of sounding cheesy now, but high challenge, <laughs> high support. So when you have a big focus on results and in performance, it's always going to be challenging environment when you set the standards high. Um, but knowing that coaching matters, it's the need to support people to achieve it. So I think high challenge and high support in terms of the way that I work, you know, I really like simplicity. I describe myself as simple, focused and driven as a person. Um, and I guess I like business plans that are the same. Simple enough for me to understand and to explain to others, focused enough to deliver the results, uh, and driven enough really to make sure that you can enjoy the process of executing. I I believe in uh, trust is hugely efficient in business. You know, my teams, the guys and girls that I've worked with will tell you the words I always come back to are trust and empowerment. Uh, I think if you can have a simple plan that people understand, it's very focused on outcome delivery. Have enough trust within the team that you can challenge each other, debate whether that's the right outcomes to go after, really agree on what the key steps are to get there or, or, or disagree, but have the opportunity to debate it. That's when people can then go off and act in an empowered way, make decisions, move quickly and keep your eyes on the scoreboard. That way you can adjust fast to if the school board goes in the wrong direction, you make amends if the school board goes in the right direction you're probably probably not doing things that are too far wrong so quite a long answer but high challenge uh, and high support
1: you seem very clear around you know what you stand for as a leader you, you know you talked about there high challenge high support simple focus driven with with trust and empowerment for the team that's something that you would have learned i'm sure uh, over the 18 years in, in your career what would be some of the defining moments that's led you to that give me you know or and the listeners some stories please that's that's led you to believe in that and have that that focus that you clearly have
0: my I guess my language has been shaped with the help of others so uh, not least Clarity Leadership who've helped me have a framework to express the way that I think leadership should be done and teams should be driven Um, and how you pull together folks to get all marching uh, to the same tune but my my forming moments and the experiences that have got me here are really bad practice. They're difficult situations, so it's it's hard for me to tell the stories without shining a light on individuals. But my my background is in business turnaround, so not originally by design. I just really took uh, the jobs that other people didn't wanted. Um, you know, there'd be opportunities in corporates or divisions or businesses that maybe had chewed up previous managers and no one else really wanted them. So the way for me to accelerate my career starting late in life, um, was to take those jobs on and turn them around. Um, I didn't know at the time, I didn't say I'm a turnaround person. Other people started calling me that later. And I thought, well, okay, yeah, I am actually, that is what I do, um, <laughs> But it it is the bad practice that I've seen in those situations, the impact of inattention to results, what happens when teams don't trust each other. Um, those characteristics have played out consistently in every turnaround I've seen. I also see this whole piece around the illusion of harmony where nobody's prepared to say, you know, in a meeting, actually, I'm not sure we're doing the right thing here, chaps or I'm concerned about this project, I don't don't think it's taking us in the right direction. The illusion of harmony has definitely been an issue that I've seen in all turnaround situations. And because of my sector, which has turned out to be kind of business to business, business industrials type uh, arena, lots of blue collar type services Centrism is the other thing uh, that I've seen consistently that's a problem that's therefore shaped the way that I operate. So taking decision making to the center, taking it towards the ivory tower to use the cliche, actually decision making in business to business in trade needs to be done close to where value creation happens. So close to the customer and the the more you can empower decision making to happen close to the customer, um, the more benefit you gain probably the last area I think about uh, that I've seen as a consistent theme and has definitely, definitely shaped the way that I operate as a leader is overcomplication. You know, I've spoken to lots of management teams where they've changed the MD because it's now me or they've changed the CEO because it's now me. And I've never heard any of them say, you know, I think we could have done a much better job if we would just gone about it in a bit more complicated way. (laughs) <laughs> you know, there's a universal theme of uh, we, we started too much stuff. It all got a bit complicated. We got a bit bogged down. We lost sight of where we were going. You know, hand in hand with simple focus driven plans is simplicity and prioritization. So no real stories in there necessarily, Phil, but that's that's the sort of bad practice that served as a good example and shaped my leadership style.
1: Okay, thank, thank you. And without shining light. Um, under any names in particular you know what would you say are the biggest mistakes you've made as a leader and what have you learned from those
0: probably quite personal I might need to lie down for this one but (laughs) but from my perspective my my biggest inhibitor has been shedding imposter syndrome right um I have no formal education I don't have any qualifications you know and starting out on my journey I didn't have any experience either and every successive job has been a promotion so I've never had that experience you know experience at that level whenever I've taken that job on and um, for a while I really struggled you know my challenges have been around seeing what other people did and thinking I should copy them and be like them um rather than just learning and understanding and seeing what I could take and make part of my way of working. i got some advice early on in my career that stuck with me all the way that doesn't mean it hasn't been without its challenges to actually live up to it but being the best version of myself I can be you know the best Lee Newman that's been hugely empowering and uh you know we all have a continuum between the best versions of ourselves and the not best versions of ourselves. And at one end of that continuum, I know that I'm a pretty pretty effective at what I do. At the other end, I'm far less effective. So my, my challenge has been making sure that I spend time at the right end of that continuum. And the more I've practiced that, the more I've thought about that, the easier it's become. And without you know, without being too base about it, having financial security has also significantly helped. Mm-hmm. You know, as as you become liberated from mortgages and those kinds of imperatives, actually shedding the imposter syndrome is, is a lot easier. Um, I think that's been my biggest single challenge is not being worried about what I don't know um, and really focusing on what I do bring.
1: Thank you for sharing that, Lee. I think that will be revealing for a lot of people listening in. There's, we, We've all struggled with imposter syndrome from time to time. Different people have it at different levels. And to hear you talk about it like that, you know, coming into to business with no formal education, qualifications, and to achieve what you've achieved is pretty remarkable, yet still feeling that in the biggest uh, biggest challenge, I guess, has been that imposter syndrome. Thank you. For you as a... A leader, what causes that red mist to come down you, you know you I know you set high standards for your team and you demand a lot from them that's one of the things that sets you apart I think and you hold the team accountable there's got to be some times when you get really frustrated uh, at, with the team what, what what are the what are some of the factors that will cause that red mist to come down
0: I don't respond very well to lethargy, uh, or, or quitters. Um, you know, I believe in graft. I value, I value hard work. Um, certainly sustainable effort is, is significantly important. I think in delivering sustainable success, you know, if you, whatever you set out to do, if it requires you to deliver an unsustainable amount of effort, um, you can't keep it going long enough to really get the full benefit. So I, I do like a grafter. I'm a sucker for a grafter, <laughs> which means the opposite of that is also true. The lethargic quitter is not not a good ingredient for my team. I, I also struggle, and um, probably where the red mist really comes down, uh, is commentators, um, I feel like I'm talking about sport <laughs> too much now, but get, you, you're on. You're supposed to be on the pitch, playing with a team of people. You may be captain or you may be a leader within that team, but you're meant to be on the te- on the pitch playing. And some leaders and even junior colleagues actually feel like they're commentating on the game they're supposed to be playing. Like they've got a really good story, a really good rationale about why things are all really not where we intended them to be. Um, and I've, I I consistently find myself saying that's, you know, that's a really good articulation of the problem. And I think you've nailed it. I think that's absolutely right. So let's move on from that now. And can we actually talk about what we're going to do about it? Mm. Because consistently restating the problem as if you're commentating on the match, um, isn't very helpful. What's really helpful is agree that that's the status quo. What are we going to do to change it? And I, I do struggle and have limited patience for uh, folks that like to go around the loop of restating the issue as if saying it again, either makes it acceptable or makes it insurmountable. Um, and neither of those things are true.
1: So you, you know, what I'm hearing from that is you want people to take action, identify the issues and then take action on it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And seek help if required, offer, uh, you know, ask for other folks to offer an opinion um, for sure. But if you see the issue, let's be clear what it is and let's get on with making it better.
1: You talked about being the best version of, of yourself that you can be. What what are the key ingredients for making that happen? They're, they're, I would imagine there is a process that you go through to give yourself the best opportunity to for you to be at your best.
0: Uh, yeah, for me, there's two bits here. There's, there's how I prepare and, and what I do, um, in terms of preparation for me, I, I know that, uh, I need to eat well, I need to exercise well, uh, and I need to be happy, um, and happiness for me is kind of, I don't really believe in work-life balance because it suggests <laughs> they're two different things. Yep. And actually one is a subset of the other, you know, like I have a life and work is part of it. Sometimes it's a really big part of it. Sometimes it's a smaller part of it. Um, but I do know that, uh, you know, on a, on a human level for me to perform well, I need to be happy. And I take i everybody's happiness ingredients are different. Um, but I take that seriously at work too. You know, the mental health and stability um, of my team is significantly important, particularly at times like now with all of the disruptions of, you know, COVID world and uh, you know doomsday and lots of the press and all of the kind of stories that are going around social media, etc. I'm always conscious. Actually, there's a backstory and a background narrative, a music playing in everybody's head. Um, And you really need people to be centered and feeling good to to perform. So my own personal preparation is around eating well, exercising well uh, and taking time to fulfill all of the roles I have. So, yes, I'm a businessman. Yes, I'm a leader. But I'm also a husband. I'm also a father. And I'm also, you know, an individual and need to take some time for doing the stuff that I like to do. So that's kind of getting me ready to perform. And then in terms of what I do, uh, I almost feel like I cheat the game a little bit, Phil, because I like to compete in situations where I feel like I've got an advantage. So going back to my sporting days, you know, when I, when I threw the discus, um, discus is a rotational event and uh, it's a technical event. Um, and I was, uh, I was always quite small for a discus thrower. So I'm, six foot one, six foot two before my back surgery, um, through my personal best at around 21, 22 stone in body weight. Um, but, but I was usually the little guy and the other guys, that, you know, at the world-class level were larger and more powerful than I was. So if I wanted to throw a long way on any given day, I, it was nice to have sunshine. It was nice to have a dry circle. Um, it was nice to have a, a, a headwind coming from the right hand side. Discus is aerodynamic. You know, you get the thing spinning right on the right angle of attack. You gain advantage from that headwind. But actually, those were not the conditions I needed to win. They were the conditions I needed to throw a long way. To win, I had to beat people. Uh, and to beat people, uh, I didn't want those conditions. I wanted rain. I wanted a tailwind. I wanted a slippy circle. I wanted tough, tough conditions, because technically I was very good, and it would uh, annul a little bit the size and power advantage that some of my competitors had. So all of my very best competitive performances came in difficult conditions, and the reason I draw that out now about how I think I skew the game a little bit now is I seek out difficult situations. I seek out turnaround opportunities where maybe banks are unhappy or private equity houses are unhappy. Maybe two, three rounds of management have failed. And the situation is now really a burning platform. In fact, it's not just a burning platform. It's a burning platform with, with tanks of gasoline on it. You know, this is going to go up in smoke. I put myself in those situations because it's high pressure. Uh, it's difficult and it needs clear, rapid, decisive decision-making. And that's the my competitive arena. That's what I enjoy doing. I think yeah, yeah. everybody finds that situation tough, but I find it less tough. I'm calm in the storm. So I would rather compete in difficult circumstances because I think I've got an advantage than compete in nice you know anodyne uh, benign conditions mm-hmm. if if a business needs a few percent on the top line a little bit of margin and some cost control um, I, I'm not the guy for that um, I'm too expensive for that and there are other people that are better at it um, I, I like either rapid growth or the need for a significant turnaround so how am I at my best um, make sure I'm mentally physically ready but also I compete in situations where I believe I have an advantage.
1: What What's interesting there is you're, you're talking about actively looking and seeking for the difficult circumstances because that gives you that competitive edge.
0: Yeah it's good fun.
1: I think that that sets you apart from many many people that will be listening to this and and thinking about actually who who looks out for those difficult situations to give them a Uh, competitive advantage good for you sir what 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 advice would you give for aspiring leaders
0: I think uh, be coachable number one like be open to coaching and more than that actively seek coaching I I would also say uh, try to find yourself um, understand who you are and what you bring not worry too much about the things that are not your strongest suits Uh, be clear about what you're good at and really bring that Be mindful as well that your greatest strength, you know, often becomes your greatest risk. Um, but, but find yourself because I think that's what I think that's what really enables you to contribute. Um, Alongside that, something you and I haven't talked about for a while, actually, Phil, but you'll have you'll have re- recalled conversations where I've talked many times about saying, look, inside, fundamentally, I think I'm just a bit miserable. And <laughs> actually, I am motivated by running away from failure. Like, I imagine all of the terrible things that could go wrong. I desperately don't want those things to co- go wrong. Uh, and I work like Bilio to not let that failure happen what's what's transitioned over the years and i think it's something to do with dumping the imposter syndrome bit is i actually now feel different to that um i actually now feel far more inspired by painting a compelling vision and running towards that sunlight whereas before i was always running away from all the stuff that might go wrong it was difficult to be brave when you're worried about the downside but actually, over the years, I, I now feel far more focused on, look, I can see where the really good outcomes are here. I can see what that's going to look like, what's going to feel like, how it's going to be for folks. Um, and running towards that, uh, it's far easier to be brave in those situations. And what What 18 years has taught me is it's never as bad as you think it is. And when you get stuff wrong, it's never as bad as what you think it is. Those two yeah. things play true. Like the mistakes I've made over the years that I thought were going to be horrendous, you know, when I've when I've confessed early and sought help, uh, it's never been as bad as I thought it was.
1: Good, good for you. You talk about finding yourself uh, is an important part of leadership. H- how have you gone about finding yourself? I think this is the question that's you know for some people they're going. you know, I'm not really sure this is the job for me or, you know, whatever it is they're doing. How have you gone about finding yourself in that way?
0: We've talked before, Phil, about um, finding a way to get people to bring their discretionary effort to work, finding a way to make folks want to do it and then some. And that journey starts with you, the person you see in the mirror, like, I needed to be really clear about what it takes for me to bring my discretionary effort to work. So getting an understanding of what what I like to do, what I find enjoyable, what makes me get out of bed in the morning and want to do more um, and being really clear over what a role looks like that makes that more of my working time, not less of my working time. Um, That's that's what's helped me find me in work. And outside work, exactly the same, mm-hmm. exactly the same process of understanding what gets me out of bed in the morning, what makes me happy, what makes me excited, uh, what makes me feel rewarded. Um, although they're very different things inside and outside work. And I I bring a side of my personality out inside work, which I almost actively avoid doing at home. I kind of recover and go back to my introvert tendencies in my personal Mm -hmm. life. Um, But being clear in both environments, actually, what is it that gets me to bring my discretionary effort? What is it that makes me enjoy my job? Because I found there's a definite link between that which you enjoy tends to be the thing that you're good at, or certainly the thing that you're good at, you tend to enjoy doing. So being clear about what those things are is kind of helpful.
1: I'd like to get an insight or share with the listeners uh, an insight to Lee outside of work. You've talked about your discretionary effort. You also talked about, you know, your your size uh, and when you were competing, you know, that you were 22 stone. Uh, when I think back to uh, the shot put champion at the time uh, was Jeff Capes. Uh, for people who are listening, many people will remember him. I think he even won World's Strongest Man. And and you're nothing like the frame and size of of a Jeff Capes. In in fact, you know you've you've lost considerable weight give us a you know how have you gone about that and and give us an insight to to lee outside of work today
0: (laughs) it kind of just happened like i stopped training stopped lifting weights so much stopped eating so much and i started to get smaller and it's you know it's been a long time now and i meet people from various stages of my life and most people tend to greet me in a shocked way either because I used to be bigger or I used to be smaller or, you know, I, I used to shave my head for 30 years and now I've grown my hair back. Um, most folks kind of don't tend to recognize me if they haven't seen me for a while. I'm around 10 stone lighter than when I was competing uh, now. It's come as a shock to me that actually my natural size is t- sort of 12 stone. I never really realized that. I was 16 stone when I was 15 years old. So I'd never, I didn't realize this was naturally, naturally me. Um, outside work, uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty quiet. Some would say boring. Lots of people might say boring. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've got, I've got a, a wonderful wife, two daughters and two dogs. I like to spend time with the family um they they you know they lead the way I'm very clear in our family of six that I am number six in the pecking order so so that's really cool um you know you, it definitely is a good antidote to feeling like you're too important because you've got a job title that makes you sound important and perhaps people in work treat treat you like you're more important than you really are as opposed to just a member of the team um there's a good antidote to that which is come home Uh, (laughs) and you realize that you really are in a team and you're definitely not that important. Um, I like, you know, I like to exercise, as I've said, go to the gym. It's, it's brutal, I suppose. I like pain, Phil. So I like getting on my ergometer. I like riding my bike and I like exercising in the gym. Uh, and I have a really small circle of friends who I trust completely, um, and that feels like a complete a complete escape. I've got three different homes. Now, I have a home where my wife and children and my dogs are, and I can relax and be a version of myself there. I have a home uh, at business, you know, where my team are, where my business is, and I can relax and feel at home there. And then I have a small group of friends um and we do activities throughout the year and I can I can relax there too and and I what I know in that environment is I'm very quiet uh, and I'm uh, I like to listen to other people speak um and I'm often the butt of the jokes uh in my in my social circle um and that's perfect for me and it's the complete antidote to being in work where people want to hear me speak and um At least to my face, I'm never the butt of the jokes. (laughs)
1: Uh, I I love I love how you describe each one of those as three separate homes. I I think that's uh, that's a great analogy. Um, Professionally and, and or personally, how have you overcome your biggest setbacks?
0: Remaining coachable is a theme of, you know, I've said that before here, um, you don't win very often when you're an athlete. You know, you compete often. Perhaps if you're, you know, if you're uh, the age group of Jeff Capes, etc. Edwin Moses was the guy oh, yeah. in the 400 meters hurdles, <laughs> 115 or whatever it was, consecutive victories. But, um, you know, I was no Edwin Moses. So um, you don't win very often. You, you're more commonly a second and third and this kind of thing. Um, so you don't have to win all the time to still be doing well. And being coachable is about trying to understand how you bridge the gap between your current performance level and your best possible performance level. So my, my big setbacks, uh, they've never been that costly. And actually, the only way to make a costly setback actually crystallize as a cost as opposed to an investment is not to, not to learn from it. You know, if you make a mistake and there's a financial impact or a personal impact and you do nothing different, that really is a cost. If you if you do something different because you've learned from it, it's not a cost. Uh, it's an investment in your progress. It's an investment in in going forward. So you could read into that and say, well, you, you've overcome your bigger setbacks by losing a lot and getting used to it. <laughs> um, I don't like to see it that way. Um, the setbacks are never really that bad. You know, I think. Setbacks can impact your motivation far more than your commitment. You know, uh, motivation comes and goes, I think. Um, You can do things to help motivation. Um, But the the switch, the decision is commitment. Um, And commitment isn't impacted by motivation or the changing of the seasons or the situation you're in. If you're committed to something, the setbacks are just that. They just set you back. And all you need to do is work out how you don't make that same mistake again and you'll continue to go forward.
1: Uh, It's interesting how you differ between uh, motivation and commitment. And commitment feels like that's the the red thread and motivation can can go up and down. Am I getting that right?
0: That's how I see it. Yeah.
1: Uh, I love that analogy. Thank you. Um, What does the future hold for you, sir?
0: I hope more of the same as somebody who's, you know, don't come to me for careers advice. I might be uh, I'm 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 chairman of a recruitment company uh, as well, amongst other things with my with my main job at VPS. But um, uh, I I don't think I'm the greatest careers advisor because I've never had a career plan myself. So talking about what the future holds, I just I, I want more of the same. You know, I count my blessings every day, inside work and outside work. Uh, so I want more of the same. I, I want to continue to feel challenged and stretched and alive. Um, I want to continue to have opportunities to feel as engaged in, in my work and in my life as I do now. My, my biggest single learning, which is probably the thing that's changed most when I reflect back on myself from childhood to being an adult, is learning to enjoy the journey that's been a catalyst to um, shedding the imposter syndrome. It's been a catalyst to relaxing about having a different background. Um, It's been a catalyst to being able to be brave and go into challenging situations, Uh, is enjoying the journey, not just focusing on getting to the destination. So um, I hope the future holds, Uh, continuing to enjoy the journey.
1: Good for you and to finish off Lee, uh some quick fire questions you've talked a lot you know about your your diet uh, and how you look after yourself what would you consider to be your guilty pleasure
0: cadbury's and up that's a really <laughs> that is a really easy, that's answer, an easy for answer, answer for you I, I live uh six days a week i eat plant-based uh diet um so no dairy no no uh red meat fish anything so vegan six days a week. And then one day a week, uh, I have some red meat and uh, allow dairy product into my diet. But my guilty pleasure on that day is fruit and nut.
1: You've talked actually about the diet and how that saved you or as a result of the diet, much less pain.
0: Yeah, I watched, the, I watched the documentary Game Changers, um, which lots of people will have seen on Netflix, I'm sure. And um, whilst the science isn't necessarily absolutely right, I took a few things out of that. and I thought, I've got to try this. You know, you're talking to a man who used to eat between 12 and 16,000 calories a day uh, when he was bulking up for for track and field. Um, I have a big appetite and, and I love food. Um, but but I had a lot of injuries when I retired and a lot of joint inflammation. I have arthritis. Um, I suffer for bad knees, bad back, bad Achilles. And one of the things in the, in the Game Changers documentary was, OK, if you try this plant-based diet, you're going to have a lot less joint inflammation uh, and you're going to find movement much more easy. Um, and I thought, OK, well, that in and of itself has it's got to be worth a try. Let me let me give it a whirl. And within two weeks, I'd come off of the anti-inflammatory drugs I've been taking for 20 years. Um, my wife has rheumatoid arthritis and she's changed this diet and she's removed... Um, her steroids that she has on prescription for her joints, and she's lessened down her rheumatoid arthritis medication, the demards, um, because of changing diet. So it, it does kind of make sense, you know, the fuel that you put in has a big impact on your performance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I kind of get it. But I do have on on the top of the stem of my my best push bike, as you know, as a cyclist, feel you need to have many bikes. But my best road <laughs> bike. Um, on the top of the stem, I have a personalised badge uh, and it says, I do this for the fruit and nut. And, and I look down at that <laughs> on the hard climbs, on the hard climbs.
1: <laughs> it's the fruit and nut that's powering you up the hill. Exactly. Uh, uh, fantastic. What makes you smile, Lee? Uh,
0: my girls. So, yeah. Sophie, Scarlet, Darcy, um, and, and also my dogs. You know, they're always pleased to see me no matter what. Uh, which is cool, which isn't always true of my girls, but it's always <laughs> that, true of my dogs.
1: That would be true of the girls as well, I'm sure. Um, and, and then last one, what have you learned about yourself in, in this year?
0: Two things, I think, through through the pandemic and changing working. You know, I used to spend two weeks a month in London, had a, had a flat in London, two weeks a month traveling Europe, and I worked Monday to Friday absolutely flat out, so you know up at 4am every day dinners every evening um flat out monday to friday never worked at the weekend um what i've learned working remotely is a couple of things um i'm not as much of an extreme introvert as i thought i was i actually do need to get some energy from other people seeing people on zoom is not quite the same as seeing them in person you might be able to say all the same stuff um and for someone who's as driven and focused as I am, you'd think having fully purposeful Zoom meetings would be would be a wonderful blessing. But actually, all of the bits and bobs around it, the less purposeful human contact stuff is really quite important too. So I'm not as much of an introvert uh, or not as extreme an introvert as I thought I was. It sounds like an admission at Alcoholics Anonymous, but I need people. <laughs> um And and the other thing I've learned is I've learned to work at weekends, which is uh, might sound strange, um, but I was absolutely, you know, fanatical. Monday to Friday was for work. Saturday and Sunday was for my family. And if I worked flat out in the week, I could give myself to my family at the weekend and be totally focused on them and uh, what i've what i now realize is actually my family don't want me totally focused on them 48 hours over the weekend like they need they'd like a, <laughs> a smattering during the week uh, and also some time at the weekend and the amount of pressure i was placing on myself on a thursday and a friday to get everything done so that i didn't have to work at the weekend just wasn't necessary and actually now i do some work at the weekend i might get up early read some papers or might. my, my might write my board report or read someone else's. Um, so I do some work at the weekend mixed in around my my normal uh, home life. And in the week, you know, I get to have dinner with the kids a couple of times a week. Um, and I feel less pressure to get stuff done within a particular time frame. So really the, the last year, uh, I'm not as much as an introvert as I thought. And working at the weekend is is quite cool.
1: Lee, um, I'm going to say thank you. It's been a pleasure to work with you over the last 10 years uh, across a number of different businesses. The, the way in which you can galvanize a team, I think, is extraordinary uh, and hold the line in terms of what's expected of them. It's always great fun working with you and the team as well. Uh, and uh, when I thought about doing this podcast, it, you, you know, and I know, you were absolutely uh, one of the first names on the list. Uh, and you haven't let me down, mate. It's been brilliant, really insightful. Thank you very much, Lee.
0: Thanks, Phil. I can't believe it's taken 10 years for you to say something nice to me, but
1: I'll take it. (laughs) I will take it. (laughs) Cheers, mate. Have a good day. And
0: you. Leadership Confessions from Clarity Leadership. Email hello at clarityleadership.co.uk and subscribe to receive every episode as it's released.